All right, guys, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer and we'll get started. Our Father, we thank you that we've had uh, some time to, to celebrate the fact that uh, your son came into this world. That, that's something that is uh, just still hard to fathom. And all the implications of that, uh, theologically, we, we grasp what we can, but what we do know is that uh, there has never been such a sacrifice. And we're so thankful that we have a Savior that understands everything that we deal with. Uh, we, we have a Lord that uh, has taken on human flesh. Not human sin, but human flesh. And so the struggles and the um, temptations that are common to man, uh, he, he understands those things. Uh, we have fallen, he has not. And those of us who were guilty, who should have been on that cross, well, he went to that cross for us. We're thankful that he was born of a virgin. We thank you, Lord, that that's a supernatural thing, but Christianity is supernatural. We're so grateful that we have a Bible to study tonight that has been written by you. Uh, we thank you that every page of this book and every word of this book is inspired and God-breathed. We're coming, Lord, uh, into a new year. Uh, some of us, this past year was, was a great year. Others of us, it was a tough year. But we thank you, Lord, that you give us new beginnings. We don't know what's ahead of us, but you do. Uh, you know the days that are ordained for us when as yet there's not one of them. So, Lord, we enter into this new year studying your word, looking to you, asking for wisdom. We've never been in 2004 before. We know what 2003 was like, but we've never been in 2004. We need to stay close to you. Help us to live well. Help us to live wisely. Help us to stay close to you and to your word. Help us not to drift. Help us not to wander. Help us not to be stupid. But give us your wisdom, we ask. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Lou, you passing out some stuff? You guys should be getting a chart that's going to enable us to get going tonight. About 10 years ago, uh, I got a call from a, from a pastor in, uh, in Maui. And uh, he... So, Steve, we're getting a bunch of guys together. Uh, we'd like to do an all-day event on a Saturday, and we'd really love it if you could come out and uh, speak to all these guys. We're getting a bunch of churches on the island together, and we'd really love it if you could come and, uh, you know, speak to these guys. And then if you could stay on Sunday and do our services, that'd be great. If you could give us a day and a half, um, we'd like to invite you and your wife to come out. We, we'd, we'd cover all your expenses, pay your plane flight. There's a guy in the church that has a condominium on the beach. Uh, he's got a rental car that's just sitting there, or a car that's just sitting there. Uh, if you could give us a day and a half, we'd like to cover everything for you and your wife for 10 days free. And I said, well, let me pray about that. Yes, I can come. <laughs> you, you know, some things are so clearly God's will. So we'd never been able to go over there, and so we had 10 days. We had a wonderful time. And, uh, you know, Maui's a pretty small island. So the first couple days, we're, we're just driving around and finding beaches. And, the, and then I get a call from a guy that had been at the conference, 
And he owned a, uh, a helicopter company, charter company. And he said, hey, if you guys are clear tomorrow, I'd like to just take you up. And uh, so we did. And that was quite a deal. It's one thing uh, to look at Maui from the ground. It's another thing to look at it from a helicopter. And uh, amazing. We flew into that rainforest. You see those waterfalls. Then you climb out of there, and then you go over just, you know, 20 miles to what looks like a moon crater and all the movies that shoot the scenes on the moon or shooting it on that site in Maui. And then you follow the road to Hana, which is so curvy, you're guaranteed to throw up 15 times before you get there. And we just flew right over it and got to Hana. And it's one thing to drive, it's another thing to get in a helicopter. As we start this uh, kind of the uh, second half of the season on this study on the dead, I, I want us to start off, uh, I want us to get in the helicopter here for a few minutes and see where we've been and see where we're going. So you've been given a chart, and the chart is of the divided kingdom of Israel. If you recall, and, and this is review here for a few minutes, if you recall the first three kings of Israel were Saul, then David, then Solomon. After Solomon died, um, the nation split. His son Rehoboam took the throne. He was completely unprepared for the task because Solomon had never taken the time to prepare him. He takes the throne. Within a matter of three days, the nation splits into two. And just as we had a civil war, and just as we had the north and the south, so they had the north and the south. When, when the nation split under uh, Rehoboam, the ten tribes in the north became known as Israel. The, ten, the two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin, where the capital was, uh, Jerusalem, became known as Judah. So Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Uh, after Solomon, you're going to have 40 kings. You know, it covers a period of several hundred years. You're going to have 40 kings, 20 kings in the north, 20 kings in the south. All of the 20 kings in the north are wicked, all of them, every single one of them. Started off wicked with Jeroboam, and they all continued in the ways of Jeroboam. In the south, eight of the 20 kings could be considered what we would call good kings. Now, we've studied some of these guys. Uh, those aren't real good odds. Those aren't real encouraging odds. Out of 40 kings, eight would be called good. But if you'll look at your sheet here, I want to I go ahead and give you the names of the eight kings that we would consider good. Um, and you can kind of helicopter over this. But we start off with Rehoboam. We're talking now southern kingdom. We're talking Judah. The first good king in the south was Asa. And you see him listed there. Uh, and by the way, this chart comes from, uh, comes from uh, Tyndale uh, Old Testament publishers. And it says, Asa, who reigned for 41 years, he destroyed the pagan altars and rebuilt the altars of God. Some of you guys remember, we studied Asa. Uh, he built four to five cities. He gained much wealth from plunder of foreign conquest. He removed the queen mother for worshiping the Asherah. He led the people to worship God with their hearts, provided peace on home soil. He was greatly loved and given a beautiful funeral. That's Asa. He was one of the good guys. He was one of the good kings. Um, 
The next one was Jehoshaphat. He's just the next one over. And you said, now wait a minute. I thought he really made some bad moves. Well, he did make some bad moves because he got an alliance going with Ahab, who was the wickedest king in the north. That was a bad move. Uh, what I want you to note is, I'm giving you the list of eight good kings, not eight perfect kings. These guys weren't flawless. These guys had flaws. Just as you have flaws, just as I have flaws. So they, they had their imperfections, but Jehoshaphat did some very good things. So he'd be the second good king. Uh, then if you keep turning the page, you will come to Joash. We studied Joash. He ruled for 40 years. Uh, he was crowned king at the age of seven. If you remember the story, he was sequestered by Jehoiada and his wife from the wicked queen mother. Some of you guys remember that. You were here. He promoted peace and prosperity, repaired the temple, smashed the altars of Baal. But after Jehoiada, his mentor, died, he really turned and even had Jehoiada's son killed. Then you say, wait a minute. You're saying that guy was a good king? Well, let's say this. He did a lot of good things, but unfortunately, he didn't finish strong. You know, the name of the game in the Christian life is to finish strong. We've talked about this here before. Um, I feel so strongly about this that I wrote a book for myself. I, I wrote a book called Finishing Strong. I didn't write that for anybody else. I wrote it for me. Because I, as a young guy, I saw men that had influenced me for Christ screw up their lives and make some really stupid moves. And it continues to happen. Guys that know better, guys that know the truth, guys that know the word of God, guys that have been blessed by God, guys that... Uh, have had their sins forgiven, guys that uh, have taught the scriptures, their heart gets turned, you start compromising in an area, and oftentimes it's with a gal, and what happens is uh, you start, uh, you know, these relationships, and it's a friendship, and it's no big deal, and then you start spending time, and then all of a sudden, you're gone. You're finished. You're toast. Um, that happens. Um, where are you in life on this, uh, on this race that we're running? How many of you guys are in your 20s? Let me see your hands. Okay, good. It's good to be in your 20s. Enjoy that. Before long, you'll be pulling hamstrings. <clears throat> but usually in your 20s, you don't worry about that much. Uh, you're, you're, you're just kind of getting started. It's a good place to be. Uh, know this, in your 20s, uh, the decisions you're making are foundational for the rest of your life. So you need the wisdom of Almighty God in your 20s. Then you hit your 30s. How many of you guys are in your 30s? Man, a lot of guys in their 30s here. Yeah. So you got, you got jobs and you got mortgages and you got kids and you got responsibility. No wonder you look so bad. <laughs> you know? That's the 30s, man. You're climbing the ladder. You got a lot of responsibility on your shoulders. And... Uh, that's a good place to be. But, uh, man, you need wisdom in your 30s because so many guys in their 30s are making wrong choices and making wrong moves, and they're on the wrong path going the wrong direction. Then you get in your 40s. Let's see you guys. Yeah. It's amazing you can get your hands up. <laughs> Rotator cuffs in the 40s. It starts to hit you. Start breaking down. Too many miles on the tires, you know? And you can't believe you're 40, uh, but you are. And uh, 
uh, you know, you're in the second half of life, officially, when you hit your 40s. And uh, uh, maybe you've done well. Maybe, uh, hey, maybe you've been married now, you know, 15 years, something like that. And uh, you, you relate, you've been through some things in your marriage, and you're hanging in there. Uh, be careful. Be careful. Because there are a lot of guys in the Bible who at the midpoint, who in their 40s, were doing fairly well. The majority of men in the Bible who failed, failed in the second half of life. That scares me. And I think we ought to run a little scared, don't you? If you don't have any fear, number one, you ought to have a, you ought to have a fear of the Lord. Secondly, you ought to have a fear of yourself. Um, uh, my biggest problem is me. Your biggest problem is you. And uh, you can do well for a long, long time, but it doesn't mean that the enemy is not still start trying to set you up. Now, how many of you guys are in your 50s? Let's see your hands. Great. How's that Rogaine coming? Yeah. Yeah, use it daily. It's not making a hill of... Oh, you're drinking it. You're drinking it now. This guy is desperate. Yeah. Have you tried the IV yet? That's, that's the next step after the drinking doesn't work. You're in your 50s. Can you believe you're... Can you believe you're that, in your 50s? In your 50s. <laughs> that's, that's right. Yeah, you're breaking down quick, man. <laughs> then you're in your 60s. How many of you guys are in your 60s? That's great. That's great. I mean, I think it's great. I've never been 60. But it sure beats the alternative, doesn't it? You see? And you can't believe you're there. Then you're in your 70s. How many of you guys are in your 70s? That's great. It really is. That's, that's wonderful. Anybody here in their 80s? Good. How old are you, sir? May I ask? 82. That's outstanding. Someone else here? Sir, may I ask? How old, how old are you? May I, if I can be that personal? 89. You look great. That's wonderful. Anybody top 89? You, you know, we're all at different points on this race called the Christian life. And the name of the game is to finish strong. As we're going to see as we look at some of these kings, good kings, some of these guys, uh, you say, oh, I'm not sure they're good. Well, you know what? They, 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 these guys started with a heart for God. Someone made some bad moves and made some bad decisions. That's why we're studying their lives. I was talking to a group of guys today, and one of the things I was saying to them is that really what we're doing is we're studying here biographies. And what we're doing by studying biography, we're studying these guys who are dead. But as we live every day, today you pin the page of your biography. I pin the page of my biography. The decisions that we make, the way that we interact with people, uh, our integrity in terms of our business and in terms of everything that we do, you're writing your biography by how you live your life. And we do it every day. Um, I heard Joe Aldrich say one time that, that Satan is so subtle that he'll wait 40 years to spring a trap. That's why so many guys who start strong don't finish strong. Name of the game is to finish strong. So we've got Asa. We've got Jehoshaphat. Then we've got Joash. Uh, who's the next good king? Well, it's Amaziah. Uh, who was the son uh, of Joash. Then the next good king uh, you, you see there is um, 
uh, what am I doing here? I'm missing my place. Is, is Uzziah, or he's also known as Azariah, you see? And then the next good king is his son, Jotham, who we're going to look at tonight. Then if you continue on the next page, well, Jotham's on the next page. Uh, then you skip over Ahaz, but you get to Hezekiah. Then you, he's a good king, Hezekiah. Then you skip over his son, Manasseh, who was a terrible king. And you get to Josiah. Josiah was probably the greatest king in all the scriptures. And we'll uh, probably finish up with him. Uh, that's kind of the helicopter view. Eight out of these 40 men could be considered good. Uh, the guy we're going to look at tonight, Jotham, is... Uh, here's what I'd call Jotham. He's in 2 Chronicles 27. I would call Jotham the uh, unappreciated offensive lineman of the Old Testament. Because I think that's what this guy's life represents. If you have your Bibles, turn me to 2 Chronicles 27. Um, 2 Chronicles 27 is all about Jotham. But if you'll note, it's a very short chapter. If you've been through us, well, if you've been with us on these studies through the Kings, you know that some of these chapters <clears throat> can get very, very lengthy. Jotham has a whole chapter devoted to him, but it's only nine verses long. It's a very short bio on this guy. And uh, I think there's a reason for that. If uh, I was, uh, this afternoon, I, I was fooling around on the internet, and I went to the uh, Pro Football Hall of Fame. And I was trying to get some answers to some questions, and I, I, didn't, I didn't get them. But uh, one of the answers that I was looking for to the, this question a question was this. Um, of the guys in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, how many of them are offensive linemen? What percentage of guys in the Pro Football Hall of Fame are offensive linemen? Did you say 5%? You say that with some conviction. Oh, you're guessing. Okay. Well, that's a good guess. But I have no frame of reference to know. I would suspect. You look very convincing to me at first. You ought to be in Iowa running for something. Um, wrong caucus. Wrong uh, uh, my guess would be it would be it would be very small. I don't think you're too far off. If I had to guess, I was looking for a list of everybody in the Hall of Fame. My my guess is the majority of them are running backs and quarterbacks uh, and wide receivers. See, there's nobody more unheralded. Let's put it this way. There's no one more critical to the success of a football team than an offensive lineman. There is nobody more unappreciated and overlooked than an offensive lineman. Uh, everybody else gets their moment of glory, even defensive linemen. Defensive linemen, every once in a while, they'll get a sack. And, you know, everybody knows who they are, and they applaud, you know, the guy got a sack. He did something. Everybody knows him. Announcer points him out. Number the whole thing. Uh, linebackers. They're always getting attention. Because linebackers make a lot of tackles. Because the defensive linemen take on a lot of lead blockers, thus leaving the running back wide open for a linebacker. So linebackers make some great hits. Uh, every once in a while, they'll make an interception. Uh, every once in a while, they'll blitz. Linebackers get a lot of attention. Defensive backs get a lot of attention. Uh, defensive back, a guy goes up to catch a pass. 
the guy's totally vulnerable, and they bury a helmet in the guy's sternum. They're, they're men of great integrity. Um, they're headhunters is what they are. And uh, that's what they're paid to do. They're paid to put fear into the hearts of wide receivers so that a wide receiver, before he's going up, he's looking around. He looks like that girl in The Exorcist because he doesn't want to get hit. He's looking all the way around to see who's going to come. There's a fear factor. So those guys get a lot of attention. Quarterbacks get a lot of attention, obviously. Running backs get a lot of attention. Not offensive linemen. The only time an offensive lineman gets any attention is is when he gets arrested. That's great. <laughs> is when he commits a penalty. He can have a flawless game, throwing blocks, keeping his guy from ever touching the quarterback, but he misses the snap count, and the whole stadium, offsides, number 73, they even give the guy's number. The only time he gets any attention is when he makes a mistake. That's an offensive lineman for you. Um, but you know as well as I do, the guys that are the great backs, and there are some great backs. And every once in a while, every once in a while, you'll see a guy make a play where he just jukes eight guys right out of their jock, and he pretty much did it by himself. But normally, 99 999 times out of 1,000, somebody threw a critical block. And it's an offensive lineman. Um, let's read about Jotham, and I'll show you why I think he's the unheralded offensive lineman of the Old Testament. And here's what I want to say to you. This guy was a great king. He was really right up at the top. But he gets so little of a bio. That's just like an offensive tackle. Not a lot of stats here. Not a lot of fluff. Not a lot of hype. Not a lot of trophies. This guy is one of the greats, and he gets nine verses. That's an offensive lineman as far as I'm concerned. Jotham was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. Now, here is sort of his report card, if you will. All right? His report card on life, on how he did as a king. And he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Uzziah had done. However, he did not enter the temple of the Lord. Now, if you were with us at our last study, you would know the significance of what that means. Because his father did enter the temple of the Lord and try to offer a sacrifice, which was the job of a priest and not a king. And his father was struck with leprosy because of that. His father was a godly man, but he got out of whack. And towards midlife, he drifted. He was still considered a good king, but in his heart, he had gotten proud. We'll, we'll get back to his dad in a minute, all right? However, he did not enter the temple of the Lord, but the people continued acting corruptly. Uh, Jotham didn't, but the people did. And then we begin to read about what this guy did. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord, and he built extensively the wall of Ophel. Moreover, he built cities in the hill country of Judah, and he built fortresses and towers on the wooded hills. Um, we'll stop right there for, for, for just now. Um, Jotham to me is, is really the guy who is, uh, of, of the kings who would be considered good, he'd be in the upper echelon. Um, 
but he's underappreciated. Uh, I think this guy was a plotter. I, I think this guy had some characteristics about his life uh, that would be uh, characteristics that any of us would want to emulate. But he doesn't get a lot of attention, even from the chronicler here. He doesn't get a lot of press. He doesn't, we don't get a lot of amplification on his life. We don't get a lot of details. I mean, he built like his father built. But if you compare the, if you just, from my Bible, I can look on the other page here and see the description of his father. If you look in uh, 2 Chronicles 26, where it's talking about his dad, Uzziah, in verse 9, it says, now Uzziah built towers. Well, that's what his son did. But you got a lot more uh, detail on what his father did than what this guy did. I don't know why it's that way. It's just the way that it is. Um, you know, offensive linemen are in the trenches. Uh, I watched the Green Bay game. Well, I watched it Sunday, but I'm talking about the one before then. The one the week before, when they, uh, who'd they play the week before? Up in Green Bay? Who'd they play? Seattle. Seattle, yeah, that was a game. And you know, you got the windshield. I've been to, I've been, I've been to Lambeau Field. It's quite a place. And there's all this tradition. And, uh, you know, it can be 70 degrees in the parking lot, and you walk inside the field, and it's 12 below zero <laughs> all the time. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Uh, there, there's a lot of tradition in that old stadium. Even they've refurbished it of late, but still, I mean, that's quite a place. Um, the thing I, I and, and I was watching Green Bay, and you know, there wasn't snow or anything, but it was cold, and there was a wind chill, and you could just see it, those people in the stands. You know, I mean, they're just, I mean, it was bitter out there. Now, that's football. And then the next game was in some dome somewhere. You know, and those guys came out wearing, uh, you know, ballet stuff. I, I mean, it's just, it's a different game when it's in a dome. Football was meant to be played in grass and mud and dirt and, and, and you know, spit and snot and blood gets all mixed up. In, and that's football. Some of you guys remember that. That's, that's the American game of football. There are teeth in the turf. You don't know what you're going to find in there. Years later, archaeologists, what are they going to find in a dome? Now, they vacuum the sucker. They're not going to find anything. I'll give you some names. Bob St. Clair. Uh, Jim Otto. Um, Ray Parker. Anybody remember him? A lot of you don't. Big, big guy, about 6'9", offensive tackle for the Baltimore Colts when uh, Unitas was quarterback. Some of you guys remember John Nyland because he was local. Um, uh, yeah, Karras. Karras was actually defensive lineman, I think. Um, I remember he hit that horse in that movie and knocked him out. You remember that? <laughs> um, uh, Ken Rutgers. Anybody remember Ken Rutgers? That guy was 14 years. He, he was Packers' left tackle. He protected Favre for years and years and years. Uh, Fuzzy Thurston. You know, there have been some great offensive linemen, but they tend not to be well-known. But those guys are in the trenches. You know, as I thought about these guys, you know what these guys really are? Um, these guys are the earthworms of, uh, of football. You go, earthworms? Yeah. 
Um, they're big, uh, and they have a job that nobody appreciates. You say, what are you, what are you talking about, earthworms? I, 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 get, I get some stuff on earthworms. Because I think, you know what? I think most of us in this room, we tend to not really appreciate earthworms the way that we should. I think they've been overlooked. I think they've been neglected. I think they've been victimized. Um, uh, the food that you ate on your plate tonight, uh, you wouldn't have eaten without the work of earthworms. Uh, we are a productive nation because of earthworms. Now, what the heck is it that an earthworm does? Well, earthworms have long been associated with productive soil. Cleopatra acknowledged their value when she declared them sacred in 50 BC. She had some issues in her life. They're not sacred, but they're important. A hundred years ago, Charles Darwin discovered that earthworms can reprocess their own weight in soil and organic matter in one day. That's significant. That's probably the only good thing Darwin ever came up with, you see. The, um, the value of earthworms to agriculture lies in their ability to change the physical and chemical composition of the soil. Physically, they change the soil by aerating it and increasing water holding capacity. Chemically, they carry soil nutrients from the soil surface to plant roots. Earthworms are in the trenches, they're in the turf, doing a job that nobody realizes, nobody appreciates, nobody sees, but I, can I submit to you, if they don't do the job, the broccoli doesn't grow. If they don't do the job, the green greens aren't going to get green. Earthworms play a strategic... Now, now, I really got something for you on earthworms. Man, I hope this better be in here, because if it's not, here it is. This is wild. <clears throat> this is... Um, uh, Ken Wells wrote a book called Hurt on the Street. Let me just give you a quote. Um, th this, is, this is placed in Coramburra, Australia. Mark Holmes thumps the flat side of a shovel down hard on a grassy creek bank and listens. Instantly, the ground erupts in gurgles and slurps that sound like water draining from a bathtub. There's one here, one there, and one over there, says the 36-year-old local Subaru dealer as he begins to cut carefully through the sod and peel back spadefuls of damp gray clay. Holes the size of garden hoses appear, and out of one, water oozes. Ah, now there's one in there, he says, chipping away more clay. We've got a lot of six and eight footers around here. We've found 12 footers, too. What Mr. Holmes is talking about are worms, giant gypsland earthworms in particular. Worms that are so big they can be heard burrowing underfoot. They scatter cattle and they cause dogs to bark and they send shivers up the back of visitors. When some Malaysian farmers visited his mother's cattle ranch here last year, Mr. Holmes unearthed a five-foot earthworm that sent them scurrying up the creek bank. There's a, little, there's a story about the visiting Englishman out on the local golf course. He is said to, discover, to have discovered an eight-foot worm on a putting green. He said, if worms are that big, I'm not waiting around to see your snakes. <laughs> it's a fascinating article on the giant earthworms. 
Now, what is it that earthworms do? They can reprocess their own weight in soil and organic matter in one day. That's important to the agricultural process. Uh, that's why I say offensive linemen are the earthworms of, of, of the football process. They're, the, huh? Would you want to have an eight-foot worm on your, on your hook? I don't think so. Uh, here are some characteristics, guys. Here are some characteristics of, uh, of these offensive linemen in, in all seriousness. When you look at those guys, uh, and I think what a coach would look for, here's what you're looking for in an offensive lineman. You're looking for somebody who's big. That's number one. But you're looking for somebody who's steady. You're looking for someone who is dependable. You're looking for someone who doesn't have to have the limelight. You're looking for someone who is consistent. You're looking for someone who is reliable. You're looking for someone who is faithful. Um, you're looking for someone who is responsible. That's a good offensive lineman. Um, Gene Veith um, mentions that there is a new handbook out by David Winner. David Winner is a psychologist turned lawyer. And he has written a book for attorneys, and his book concerns the selection of individual people for juries. You know, a lot of thought goes into this. Um, here's what Veith writes. Uh, Winner urges attorneys litigating personal injury lawsuits to keep religious people and others guilty of what he calls personal responsibility bias off of juries. In profiling potential jurors, and this comes from the Wall Street Journal, by the way. In profiling potential jurors, he warns against a type he calls the personal responsibility juror, who holds such off-the-wall beliefs as thinking that people should be self-reliant, responsible, and self-disciplined. This prejudiced group, I'm dead serious, this is no joke. This prejudiced group consists of people with traditional family values and strong religious beliefs. They go so far as to think that when people act irresponsibly and are not self-disciplined, there should be consequences, and that people must be accountable for their conduct. It is especially important to keep these biases out of a jury in cases in which the plaintiff was in the best position to avoid the injury. That's, that's just pathetic. Personal responsibility bias. Huh. Um, well, good things come from those who believe in personal responsibility. I, I, as I read the life of Jotham, I think Jotham was a great king. I'm going to tell you why. I think he was steady. I think he was dependable. I think he was consistent. I think he was reliable. I think he was faithful. I think he was responsible. There wasn't a lot of flash. There wasn't a lot of pizzazz. He didn't have to have the limelight. He just got up every day went to work, he did his job, and he did it right. And then he went home, got up the next day, came back, and did it all over. This guy, you could set your clock by. This guy was dependable. There were no surprises. There were no great mood swings, up, down. This guy 
This guy was there. He was faithful. What's required of a steward is that he be found what? Faithful, the scripture says. Uh, Not a lot of flash in this guy's life. Um, uh, We're we're living in a day, guys, where there's a lot of emphasis on the external. There's, man, we've talked about this before. We live in a day of spin. We live in a day of hype. We live in a day of, um, of appearance. We live in a day of impression. We live in a day of spin. But when, when, when you get right down to it, the thing that, that is of primary essence is not the external, it's the internal. Uh, it, it's, it's what we are becoming. Uh, we are being conformed as Christian men. We are being conformed into the image of Christ. That, that is an internal process. It has to do with the heart. It has to do with the mind. It has to do with the will. It has to do with the emotions. And, and God is seeking to mature us and conform us into the image of Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but in my life, that means there's going to be a lot of change. For me to be conformed to the image of Christ, we're talking change. A lot of us don't like change. But if, if you're a Christian and you want to follow Christ... Change is the name of the game. You know, by the way, you, you know how many psychiatrists it takes to change a light bulb? Just one, but the light bulb must want to change. It's pretty bad, and that's pretty lame. Uh, light bulbs don't have to want to change, but we do. There has to be a desire for change if I'm going to be a disciple and if I'm going to be conformed to the image of Christ. Uh, If, if you're acting the same way at 40 as you were at 20, there's something wrong. Uh, the maturing process is not taking place. Uh, it, it is possible externally uh, to be mature in some areas, but spiritually to be immature in the heart. Uh, we're talking here about an issue of growth. If, if one of your kids... Stop growing at the age of four. In fact, I had a friend when I was in seminary, and he had a son, and at the age of two, his son stopped growing. And obviously, they were very, very concerned, and his son, two perfectly normal, physically strong parents, they had a son who, because of a uh, disconnect in his system, they had a son who was a dwarf. That is an unusual thing. Now, when a child isn't growing, we get concerned. Uh, the growth process never stops in the Christian life. We've got guys here from 20 to 89. Growth never stops. <clears throat> Excuse me. When we looked at Peter a while back, one of the things I said about Peter that I appreciate about Peter, you see Peter in the Gospels. You see him with his foot in the mouth. You see him making statements. You see him... Uh, all over the map. Lord, I'll never deny you. And he denied him. Um, There's one time when he says, Jesus tells him what's going to happen, and he says, God forbid it, Lord. That's really quite a statement. (laughs) Because he's speaking to God, who is the Lord. God forbid. He didn't know what he was talking about. You know, he he had foot and mouth disease half the time. Um, he did deny the Lord. Um, 
Jesus told him what was going to happen. This little girl sees him warming himself at a fire. You were with him. I wasn't with him. Couldn't even stand up for a little girl, to a little girl. <clears throat> but yet, something happened to Peter. What happened to Peter was a change took place in his life. See, what happened to Peter was Peter just didn't grow old in Christ. Peter grew up in Christ. The name of the game in the Christian life is not to grow old. The name of the game is to grow up. I think this guy, Jotham, was a guy who grew up in his faith. Uh, I'm convinced that he was. As you take a closer look at this guy, um, he's, he's an interesting guy because um, he was a, I, I see two things in his life that were very much like his father. Uh, number one, he was a builder. Number two, he was a warrior. Uh, we already touched on the, uh, on the builder part, but let's look at it again. Look at verse 3. It says that he built the upper gate of the house of the Lord, and he built extensively the wall of Ophel. Moreover, he built cities in the hill country of Judah, and he built fortresses and towers on the wooded hills. What he was doing was stabilizing the country. He was taking care of the infrastructure. He was going about the business to make it a strong nation. He wasn't interested in accumulating uh, prestige for himself. He wasn't necessarily interested in, in uh, being on a world platform. He was going about the business of serving the people and serving God. When we first started this study, the very first night back in September, here's what I said. I, I said there's a phrase, and the phrase goes like this. Every man is king of his own castle. Uh, we don't use that phrase much anymore. But the fact of the matter is, um, if you're a husband and father, if you're a grandfather, uh, you're a king. You've got a domain. You've got a castle. It might be an apartment. It might be a three-bedroom house. Uh, you, you, you might live in a Winnebago and tour around the country, and you've just stopped off here tonight. Well, we're glad you're here. Uh, you've still got a castle. You're, if you're married, your wife is your queen. Your children are your subjects. Um, your grandchildren are involved in that. Uh, someone once said that every family is a small civilization. We could put it this way. Every family is a small nation. We could say this. Every family is a small kingdom. The question is, we're looking at these 40 kings. Most of these guys were screwed up. They were bad kings. They did a lot of damage. They hurt a lot of people. They had a lot of integrity flaws. Uh, wherever they went, they were bodies. There were a trail of bodies as these guys walked through life. They weren't constructive. They were destructive. Uh, see, the question is, is what kind of king are you and what kind of king am I? We don't view ourselves as kings, but we have been given uh, a stewardship. We've been given a responsibility, and we've been called to manage that. You've got a small kingdom on your hands. The question is, how do you do that? Uh, are you a builder? Is that what you do? This guy built the infrastructure. Every home has an atmosphere. Um, now, we, we don't tend to think of this, but I think it's true. Uh, now, you know, restaurants think a lot about atmosphere, don't they? That's a big deal to restaurants. Uh, now, most of us guys, we don't give a rip about atmosphere. We just want the food. Have you ever been out in this little place down off Northwest Highway and uh, by Sherry Lane? 
uh, down by Northwest Bible Church, there's a little place called Vice Versa. You guys ever, how many of you guys have ever been to Vice Versa? They got great vegetables. They got chicken fried steak. I mean, it's really, it's really good. And unless you're, if, if you're not there by 1130, um, you're going to be in line. There's a line going out the door and down the street. and just depends what time you get there. You're going to be in line for a while. Now, you walk in vice versa, and I'm going to tell you something. There's not much atmosphere. Uh, it's been there a long time. Uh, the, the, the tables are kind of uh, dumpy, quite frankly. It, for Micah, they've been there so long, they're kind of stained. You sit in a booth. It's got stuff coming out of the booth, that uh, padding stuff. It's coming out. Uh, the Civil War has been there for years. Uh, they wash it every day, but, I mean, that stuff's worn. Uh, it, it's not, uh, um, there's not a lot of atmosphere. There's phenomenal food, which is why everybody's lined up, but there's not much atmosphere. There are a whole lot of guys. I always notice men lined up there because I, have a, I just believe men aren't real concerned about atmosphere in restaurants. We're concerned about the food in the restaurant. That's why they do an unbelievable business at Vice Versa. Now, our wives are a little different. Sometimes our wives, on a special occasion, they want to go to a place, they want to go to a restaurant that has not only good food, but has atmosphere, has uh, ambiance. I looked that word up. You know what it means? It means expensive. <laughs> that's what it means in French. And, you know, on a special occasion, that's kind of fun to do. On a wedding anniversary or some, you know, your wife's birthday, you go someplace and it's got ambiance, you know, and you just pay out the wazoo, you know. But, uh, hey, it's a nice evening. That's kind of fun to do every once in a while. I think every home has an atmosphere. Um, the home in which you were raised, there was an atmosphere. Um, what was your home like when you were seven years old? You remember when you were seven? Where'd you live? Remember? And where'd you go to school? And who are your buddies? You got that in focus now, don't you? Remember those guys and riding your bike and playing ball and, you know, you remember that? Now, let me ask you something. What was your home life like? What was your father like? Uh, what was the atmosphere in your home? You see, fathers, fathers set the atmosphere of the home. They set it. And when I say the atmosphere of the home, when you were seven years old, here's my question to you. Was the atmosphere in your home that your father set, was it one of construction or destruction? In your home, when you were a seven-year-old kid, when I say construction, if your home that your dad had if the atmosphere in your home and your father sets the atmosphere, my question is, did your father build people up or did he tear people down? See, that's atmosphere. The dad sets the atmosphere. Some of you guys had dads. They did a great job. They encouraged you. They were behind you. They were for you. They disciplined you. They loved you. Some of you guys, your dads weren't even around. They had left. They would cut out. Uh, some of you had dads that were irresponsible. They weren't steady. They weren't dependable. They weren't reliable. They weren't loyal. And that's marked you forever. Uh, that's why you're real motivated not to be that way. Because of the atmosphere was one of destruction. Oh, you'll never amount to anything. You're a loser. 
I have met guys that are 50 years old that are still trying to win the approval of their fathers, and their fathers have been dead for 10 years. That's how much of an impact a father has on a son. Not much you can do about the home in which you were raised, but guys, now we're the fathers. Now we're the dads. Now we're the kings. And the king sets the atmosphere in his kingdom. So let me ask you something. If, if, if uh, someone were to ask your wife, if someone were to ask your daughter or your son, what's the atmosphere in your home? Constructive or destructive? What would they say? See, that's what I mean by we're writing our own biography. All these guys, all these guys on this chart wrote their own biography every day by how they treated their wife or wives and, you know, these guys were studs, so they went out to get as many wives as they possibly could get because they were trying to make political alliances, you see. They were, every day, and how they dealt and how they made decisions. Who am I going to marry? How many am I going to marry? Uh, how am I going to conduct my affairs? How am I going to do? How, how am I going to do this? See, it, it's all writing. Up. Somebody, there used to be a phrase in the 60s, it's okay as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. Well, sin always hurts somebody. Always. Um, you know, James talks about the power of the tongue. He says, See, what, why, why are you getting all this? I thought we were talking about Jotham. Well, we are talking about Jotham was a builder. Now, you know, he went and built the gates of Jerusalem, and he did all this and built fortress cities. Listen, God hasn't called you to do that. He hasn't called me to do that. But what he's called me to do is to build up my wife. He's called me to build up my children. He's called me to build up my grandchildren. That's building, that's construction. We're not in the, we're not in the uh, construction business of buildings as Christian men. We are building Christian people. We're building Christian homes. We're building Christian families. Marriage is absolutely falling apart in our nation. It's absolutely, you, you, now we got this whole talk of homosexual marriage. Uh, you know how many couples are choosing not to get married at all, just to live together? See, somebody needs to demonstrate what it is to have a Christian marriage. That's your job, that's mine. And you know what? Building is tough. Building a marriage is hard. Building a marriage is difficult. There are setbacks. There are times when it's easier than others. But you keep building. This guy stayed with it. He was steady. He was dependable. He was reliable. He was in the trenches. He was the mud. He was in the sweat. He was in all the stuff. That's being a Christian man. He was a builder. You guys still there? Okay. Let me show you what else he was. He was a warrior. He was a warrior. Um, notice, if you would, verse 5. He uh, you know what I did? I lost my watch. There it is. Okay. I just wanted to frame a reference here. Okay. Have we done daylight savings time yet? We haven't. Just, just wanted to make sure this is accurate. Look at verse 5. He fought also. Here you're going to see the guy's only a builder. He's a warrior. He fought also with the kings of the Ammonites and prevailed over them so that the Ammonites gave him during that one year 100 talents of silver, 10,000 cores of wheat, and 10,000 of barley. Now that's not a lot to us, but it was a lot to them. Um, he fought these guys and they had to pay tribute. The Ammonites also paid him this amount in the second and in the third year. So God gave him uh, success 
uh, in defending his country, in protecting his country, in standing up for his country. This, you know what this guy had? This guy had courage. To be a warrior requires courage. Uh, because you see, when, when you go to war, what happens is you make yourself vulnerable and you put yourself in harm's way. Uh, if you're a Christian husband, if you're a father, um, that's your job. We know from the scriptures, guys, we know from Ephesians 6 that we're at war. We're in spiritual warfare, aren't we? Uh, what does Ephesians 6 say? You got to turn over there. Just to get a scenario for what it is that's really happening in our lives. You ever wonder why it's... <clears throat> you ever wonder sometimes why it's so difficult um, to have a good marriage? You ever wonder why it's so difficult to have a good relationship with kids? Um, why is it that families suffer breaches? Why is it that families get angry with each other? Why is it that families get separated from one another? Uh, wh why is it that uh, 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 family members don't speak to each other? Well, it's because uh, we're in a battle and we're in a war uh, and, and, and we don't see it visibly in front of us. Look at verse 10 of Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord. <clears throat> Excuse me, and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore. Having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. What Paul's doing here is, is that he's just describing the armor that a Roman centurion would have on him. You see? Uh, because those guys were always ready for war. Uh, you should always be ready for war. Uh, used to be a great hymn. It's still around. We just don't sing much. Onward Christian soldiers. Marching as to war. With the cross of Jesus going on before. You know what's interesting to me? Uh, in that passage when he starts talking about the fact that we're to take up the full armor of God. Look at verse 13. That you may be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. You know the first thing to go in the battle is truth. Truth. You know how, uh, Les and I were, were talking here a little bit ago about uh, the fact that there were some... Uh, uh, students, D-men students, most of them pastors <clears throat> that were here this past week and at the seminary and talking with different pastors here at the church and finding out what's going on here and all this. And they have ministries in other uh, areas. And they were asking less about men's ministry and what we're doing. And one of the things that was really fascinating to, to some of them, uh, Les said, well, what do you guys, well, we have a Bible study. He said, what, do you, what, what are you teaching? Oh, we're going through Second Chronicles. And he was telling me the reaction of somebody. They were really kind of astonished that we would do that in a men's ministry. Now, why is that astonishing? Because so many churches are doing everything they can do to reach people except proclaim truth. I'm talking about evangelical churches. Um, 
It's remarkable. Truth is the first thing to go. When a guy decides to leave his wife and bail on a marriage, you know the first thing to go in that guy's life is truth. Truth's the first thing that he punts on. Truth is critical. Uh, we fight for truth. We stand up for truth. Uh, there were men, historically, men and women, who died for this book because it was truth. If you're not willing to die for truth, then you're finished. Because as Jesus said uh, in John 8, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. See, a lot of times we feel constricted by truth. We get upset by truth. But truth is the path to freedom. Uh, tr truth, truth is what is going to enable you to enjoy the fruitfulness that God has for you in your life. But see, sometimes that truth, we want to run from it because it's not comfortable and it's not what we want to hear. Uh, if you're in a marriage that is difficult, that is hard, where you and your wife are not seen eye to eye, or, or the spark is gone, the romance is gone, the respect is gone, who wants to stick around on a deal like that? But the truth of the matter is, is that Ephesians 5 is still in the Bible. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's, you know what offensive linemen do? They're always giving themselves up. Always. They never score. Uh, they, never, they never set the rushing record. They never get the glory. They never have a banquet for them. They're always giving. They're always taking the shot. They're always taking the hit. They're always getting buried. They're always under the pile. Somebody's, somebody's yeah, just taping this thing. Somebody's, you know, hitting them in the balls underneath the pot. You know what I'm talking about? You guys ever play football? All kinds of things go on under there. You know? Someone asked Dick Butkus one time, great linebacker for the Bears. He's pretty intense. He said, would you ever purposefully hurt anybody? He said, no, no, not unless it was a playoff game. <laughs> a lot of stuff happens in football. A lot of stuff happens in those lines. A lot of guys lose teeth. A lot of guys are hitting the chops. A lot of guys have fingers put in the eye. See, they're taking the hit. That's what offensive linemen do. That's what men are to do for their families. See? Why? Because you're trying. Listen, you're a warrior. You're going to war. This isn't what's best for you. You know what good kings do? Best king, the great kings don't have a mindset that all these people are here to serve me. The great kings have a mindset, I'm here to serve these people. This summer, um, before we went to England, I, I got a hold of Churchill's, he wrote four volumes on a history of English-speaking peoples. So I read through those. I wanted to read through them before I got to England. And, and you know, all that, that's all about kings. From William the Conqueror, and about, what is that, 1040? That guy came over there. From then on, it's kings. It's kings. And you got the Tudors, and you got the Stuarts, and you got Edwards, and you got James, and you got all the, you got all the, it's kings. Some were lousy kings. The lousy kings, they thought those people were there for them. And they killed them, and they maimed them, and they slaughtered them, and they raped them. 
But the great kings, the great kings ask, how can I serve these people? And the great kings were loved. And they were, and, and they were adored and they were appreciated. You see? Gee, nothing changes, does it? See, guys, it's easy to sit here and read these guys in Second Chronicles 27 and Jotham and, you know, uh, Joash and all these guys. But see, the, but see, this comes to me and it comes to you. It comes to relationships. Uh, there are people that are under your home and under your authority. Uh, so who's most important? What did Jesus say? Jesus said if you're going to be great in the kingdom of God, you must become the, the servant or the slave. You see? So, so many guys, they, okay, I'm the guy and the bread, and it, it revolves around what makes you, hey, listen, it's, have you guys seen Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life? I mean, if you haven't, you're the only guy in America who hasn't. That book is selling 50,000 copies a day. It's amazing. Um, we were, was it Thanksgiving? I think it was. We were in California. I think it was Thanksgiving. Maybe it wasn't. Um, but we were with my mom and dad at, at, uh, at Mount Hermon, and we were walking up to the cafeteria. And my dad was 80. My dad said, hey, Steve, you read this book by Rick Warren, The Purpose Driven Life? And I said, yeah, I read it. He said, I think it's a pretty good book. And I said, yeah, I think it's pretty good. He said, you know the first sentence in that book? I said, no, Dad, I don't. He said, he said here's how he starts the book. It's not about you. He said, that's pretty good. He said, it's real good, Steve. Go back and read that again. <laughs> no, that. That really pumped my dad up. You know, it's not about you. Because, see, th hey, that's it. It's not about you. So many, we think it is about us. See, some of us, we drove in here tonight, leaving the house, and we've been in an argument with our wife, and really when you boil it down, you thought it was about you. And see, she thinks it's about her. I'm not saying who's right, but somebody's got to decide, you know what, it's not about me, it's about what's best for this whole family. And if I got to take a hit, and I got to get hit in the chops, and if I'm not going to get my way in this period, fine. What's best for everybody here? Somebody needs to be a servant. Somebody needs to be willing to get hurt. Somebody needs to be willing not to score a touchdown and dance and be on national TV. That's what I'm talking about. It's servanthood. All right, let me wrap this up. Um, let's go back to 2 Chronicles 27. There, there's something in here that, that is just a jewel because I think it explains this guy's heart. Uh, this guy really fascinates me because uh, I, I wish I knew more about this guy. I, I, I wish there was more amplification about his life and there was more, uh, you know, more detail given. <clears throat> but in verse 6, I think here's the secret to this guy's life. This guy started strong and this guy finished strong. How many of you guys have been married uh, 30 years or more? Let me see your hands. Okay. You know what your job is? Your job is to die married to the woman you're married to now unless she precedes you in death. That's your job. That's the name of the game. That's your assignment from the Lord. You want to finish strong in your marriage. And you say, well, hey, there's no sweat. We've been married 30 years. 
Let me tell you something, that's no guarantee you'll be married 35 years, and you know it. See, that is a full-time job maintaining that relationship. But you know what? Your kids need you to finish strong in that marriage. Your grandchildren need you to finish strong in that marriage. If you do nothing else, you do that. You'll leave them something important. I mean, that's better than leaving them money. It's better than leaving them a house. Better than leaving them an estate. You leave them a legacy of a father who finished strong in his marriage. That's a, great, a grandfather. That's a great thing. Because what's going to happen? Your kids and your grandkids, they're going to grow up and they're going to get married and they're going to have some tough times and they're going to, you know, what do I do? And then they're going to think about you. And they're going to figure out, well, you know, mom and dad, they probably went through rough times and you know what? They stayed with it. Well, gosh, I'm going to stay with it. You see? You're setting a course. You know, you know what a father does? You know what a husband does? He, uh, you ever see his water skiing stuff? You know what I'm talking about? I mean, what's water skiing stuff? It's a boat, and it's a guy behind on skis. But uh, the boat goes, I'm going to give you a real profound insight. The boat goes first. <laughs> you may want to write that down. Um, we, we live, now, usually you go water skiing on a real nice day, and sunshine. Imagine, when you woke up this morning, was it foggy at your house like it was at my house? It was real foggy. I grew up in the San Joaquin Valley of California, Bakersfield. In the winter, the fog gets so thick, this is no exaggeration, you can open your front door and not see your car in the driveway. You can't see it. You go on Highway 99, and you're driving, and you can't, you could get out of your car and not see the stripe on the road. It's pea soup fog. And sometimes it would descend and stay for two to three weeks at a time. They would close school when I was a kid because of fog, because there were so many car accidents and bus accidents. Now, we live in a culture where a moral and spiritual fog has descended on our nation. Now, how are you going to get your children and your, and your grandchildren through that moral fog of confusion when there is no right and there is no wrong? You know how you're going to do it? You're going to be that boat, and you're pulling them, and you're going to cut a swath of courage and of obedience and of righteousness and of commitment, and they're going to follow your lead. That's how you're going to do it. And there's no other way. Paul said, you follow me as I follow Christ. We're following him. Look at verse 6. So Jotham became mighty, catch this, because he ordered his ways before the Lord his God. Now, you know what's interesting to me about that? Jotham became mighty. Why? He was a builder. He was a warrior. God blessed him. This man became mighty. Well, he had a dad who had become mighty. If you look at the previous chapter, uh, you, you read about Uzziah, his father. And remember, we got all these details about his dad because his dad was a warrior and his dad was a builder. And in fact, he was legendary in both those areas. His fame spread afar. If you look at verse 15 in 2 Chronicles 26, talking about his father Uzziah, it says, hence his fame spread afar for he was marvelously helped until he was strong. 
But when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly and was unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. This guy got so proud, everything he touched turned to gold. He was a legend in his own time. He became a legend in his own mind. Pride welled up within him. He goes into the temple to offer sacrifice. Was that his job as a king? No. It was the job of the priest. So verse 17, Azariah the priest entered after him with 80 men, priests of the Lord. They opposed Uzziah. They said, Uzziah, you're not supposed to do this. Get out of here. That's verse 18. But Uzziah in 19, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. You know what that is? That's arrogance. The, he was wrong. These men confronted him because they loved him. They held him accountable, and instead of listening, he got ticked off. He got enraged, he got angry, and while he was enraged with the priest who were holding him accountable, the leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priest in the house of the Lord beside the altar of incense. And then in verse 20, he gets out of there as fast as he can. And he lived for the rest of his life as a leper. He was still king, but, but his son, Jotham, was co-ruler with him for 11 years until he died. Now, with that in mind, it says, so Jotham became mighty because he ordered his way before the Lord his God. It says in verse 2, he did write in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. However, he did not enter the temple of the Lord like his father had done. You know what I think? I think this guy learned from his father's mistakes. It says he ordered his ways before the Lord. I want to give you two ways that I think that he did that, and we're done. Number one. See, this guy, see, his dad started strong, but didn't finish strong. Jotham started strong and finished strong. That's what we want to do, or you wouldn't be here tonight. So how did he do that? Number one, he ordered his ways by keeping an eye on his pride. Guys, we all got egos, big-time egos. What is pride? There's a good kind, there's a bad kind. I'm so proud of my son because uh, he helped his little sister clean up her room. That's a good kind of pride. Uh, Lou Saban beat Bob Stoops in the Orange Bowl. Some of you think that's good. Some of you think it's not so good. But what I found interesting after that, and there are two guys with egos. Anybody running the major college program has got an ego. Anybody. But as a reward for Saban winning a share of the national championship, they gave him a new contract, a contract that pays him $1 more than the highest coach the salary in America, which was Bob Stoops. You know what pride is? Pride is wanting to be just one dollar better. That's what pride is. Pride is just wanting to outdo the guy just by one point, by one buck, by whatever it is. See, it's just wanting to be a little better than somebody else. It's wanting a little more recognition. It's wanting a little more limelight. It's wanting a little more honor. It's wanting a little more of this. It's just a little bit more. That's pride. 
You know what this guy did? He kept his eye. He ordered his ways before the Lord. I think every day when he would go see his dad and see that leprosy, and his dad loved the Lord. His dad just got off track. I think his dad was humbled. I think his dad still had a heart for the Lord. But his dad was put on the sideline permanently. I think that when he saw his dad every day, he looked at his own pride because he knew he was potentially able to do what his dad had done. Here's the second thing. He ordered his ways by submitting to authority. He ordered his ways by submitting to authority. So where do you get that? He never entered the temple to do what his father had done. He knew his role. He knew the post that God had assigned him to, and he didn't attempt to violate the authority of God and the word of God and take something on himself that God had not commissioned him to do. Uh, He had a father who was not accountable. I think he ordered his ways to make sure that he was accountable. And as a result, how many of you guys were here Sunday and heard Chuck talk about accountability? Okay. You can preach that message every week. That's like going to spring training. You go to spring training? How many times did Nolan, Nolan Ryan went to spring training for 97 years? And every time he went, he worked on things that he probably really didn't need to work on. They're the fundament, but he kept working on them. See, that's why he kept pitching so long. There are certain fundamentals you never do away with, and one of them is accountability. What Satan loves to do is take a man and isolate him from other men who love him and are willing to confront him when necessary. If you are seeking that in your life, you're already dead meat. What you need, what I need, are people that are in our lives, that love us, that we respect, that are on our team, and when they say that's a bad idea, we say, then I won't do it. I had one of those persons on my team on Monday. I had two of them say, you know, Steve, that's probably not a good idea. I had a choice. And I've been studying this. And as soon as they said it, I said, I'm with you guys. I'm with you 100%. I'll take your advice. I'll take your counsel. Um, They're loving me enough to tell me the truth. I need to be man enough to listen to the truth. Because I want to finish strong. Father, we bow before you. Thank you for this offensive lineman. This guy is not real flashy. This guy didn't have a lot of trophies. Uh, there, There are not a lot of press clippings on this guy. But Lord, I sure like this guy. I like how he started. I like how he finished. He wasn't perfect. He had his flaws. But Lord, he ordered his steps. He ordered his ways before you. Now, Lord, some of us in this room, quite frankly, we have drifted. Some of us, Lord, are further away from you than we were six months ago. Some of us, Lord, are touching things and playing with things we have no business doing. We're compromising. And we're in a position 
We never thought we would be in perhaps a year ago, but we're there. Now tonight is the night to deal with that. Tonight is the night to stop the drift. Tonight is the night to get back, to get recalibrated, to get lined up with you. We confess our sins. You are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we desperately need you in our lives. We have a tendency to wander. We have a tendency to drift. But we want to be your guys. We want to be following you with our whole heart. So we confess our sin here. Some of us may need to go home and talk to our wives or talk to a business associate or a buddy that we can trust. We just need to come clean and we need to be straight. We want to wind up like Jotham. We really do. We ask you to do your work in our hearts, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.